Well, good morning, sisters and brothers. Um, and uh, we're looking today at Habakkuk chapter 3. Uh, it's the last in our short series on the book of Habakkuk. Uh, so if you have that ready, let me lead us in prayer. Father, thank you that you speak to us uh, by your Spirit through your Word. Thank you for giving us this prophecy uh, through the, uh, by your Holy Spirit through the prophet Habakkuk. And we pray that you help us as we consider it now. Uh, please um, open our eyes to see Christ and help us to laugh, serve, and obey him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What would you do if you heard that someone planned to cut you open with a knife while you slept? Well, you probably wouldn't sleep, would you? You'd either fight or run away. But what if you knew this person? And you knew that he had many years of surgical training and experience behind him? What if you knew that he was good and he had saved many people in the past? And what if he'd operated on you before and saved your life? And that he promised to stitch you up again and make you better? That would make a difference, wouldn't it? Allowing a stranger with a knife to cut you open is very different than going for surgery with a known and trusted surgeon. And that's a little bit what, like what we see in our passage today. You may recall what we're up to in the prophecy of Habakkuk. Now, two weeks ago, we heard that Habakkuk, uh, complaining to God, uh, that he was indifferent to all the injustice that was happening among his people. But God answered that he was indeed going to judge his people through the Babylonians, uh, whose armies would sweep in and destroy the nation. Last week, we saw Habakkuk was upset with God because those Babylonians were even more wicked than his own people. And God said he would judge the Babylonians as well. Because though he is sovereign, people are still morally responsible for their actions. God brings good out of evil. He sovereignly uses it for his good purpose, but he will punish the evil. And in the end, when the story is complete, when all is said and done, God will be shown to be just. But how would Habakkuk respond to God? God had said that the righteous would live by faith, but would Habakkuk be able to trust God, who seemed to let evil go unpunished? Would he be able to trust God when he brought terrible calamity on his people through the Babylonian invasion? And can we trust God when we face all kinds of trials and injustice? Can we trust him when our finances crash, when our family members get COVID, when our relationships suffer, when we face persecution, danger, or death? Can we be sure that he will bring good out of evil? Can we be confident he will bring justice in the end? And how do we know he is like the surgeon who cuts for good rather than the psychopath who cuts for evil? Well, you trust the surgeon because you know that the surgeon can do what he said he can do. That is, he is competent, or another way of putting it, he is powerful. And that he has a history of using that power to save you and many others. And that's the same with God. We shall see in this passage that God can be trusted because he is powerful and he uses that power to save his people. The passage begins in chapter 3, verse 1, with the title, A Prayer of Habakkuk the Prophet According to Shigionoth. Now, we don't know what Shigionoth is. Uh, it's not a breed of dog or a kind of woolly mammoth. It's probably got something to do with a musical setting. That and the bit at the end of the chapter that says, To the choir master with string instruments, means that this was meant to be sung by God's gathered people. It's a psalm. It's a prayer of Habakkuk, but it will also become a psalm of Israel. Habakkuk begins his prayer by remembering what God had done before and asking him to do it again. He says in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. 
in wrath, remember mercy. But he knows God is angry about all the sin and injustice he sees around. He knows God is going to punish Judah through the Babylonians. He's accepted that. But he asks God at the end of verse 2 that amidst of wrath he would remember mercy. Beyond the judgment he would revive his work and he would save his people once again. And then Habakkuk describes that work of God that he's heard about. And he describes it poetically uh, in typical Hebrew style. Uh, he looks back to the time when God brought his people out of Egypt uh, many, many years before. And after God saved his people from Egypt, he met with them on Mount Sinai to give them the law. And there on the mountain, there was fire and smoke and thunder and lightning and, pick, and thick cloud. And, and Habakkuk pictures God as coming from that mountain, from Mount Sinai. It's as if Habakkuk is in the land and God is in Mount Sinai and he's coming with his people, heading towards the promised land. And he uses the words Taman and Paran in verse 3 to signify places in the south, the direction where God would come as he comes in from Mount Sinai. So if you're in the promised land and you heard what God had done in the Exodus, you'd be terrified because you're waiting for God and Israel to come from that direction. But God wasn't confined to Sinai. He's not a domestic tribal God. Uh, in verse 3, he says, uh, His splendor covers the heavens. The earth is full of his praise. So this God that was bringing Israel from Sinai to the promised land was actually the God who created the heavens and the earth. In verse 4, his brightness is like the light rays flash from his hand. He's dazzling with brilliance. At Sinai, he was shown to be so great that his people were terrified. But actually, he's much, much, much bigger than that. In verse 4, it continues that the heat there, in final, he veiled his power. God is so brilliant, he's so bright, he's so glorious, he has to veil himself to be seen. And this is the Almighty God who is moving towards the promised land from Sinai. And he's got his agents of judgment with him. In fact, they're described poetically here, like his minders, like a, a VVIP might have bodyguards. Before him, in verse 5, when pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Oh, they'd been active in God's judgment on the Egyptians when they would not let his people go. And as well as on his people themselves at Mount Sinai where they worshipped a golden calf and now they come with him. God had revealed himself at Sinai. There had also been an earthquake there. In verse 6 as God's leading his people into the promised land it's as if God is shaking and moving the mountains and the hills. But actually those mountain hills represent the nations. And so as the people who lived on the way to Sinai, between Sinai and the promised land, people like the Kushan and Midian, they are in verse 7 terrified because this glorious awesome, powerful, terrifying God is coming towards them. And they are terrified because they've heard what God has recently done at the Exodus and he, they are terrified what's going to happen. And so Habakkuk speaks to God rhetorically about that in the second half of the poem. But before we look at that, notice the imagery that's going to come up in the second half. Right? Bible gives us many imagery pictures, literary pictures of God. Right? Good shepherd, the great king, the mighty judge. But in this poem, notice the Lord rides on his horse and chariot in verse 8. He's got bow and arrow in verse 9, arrows and a spear in verse 11. What's the imagery here? God is being pictured as a divine warrior. Right? We've got lots of hymns and songs about the other pictures. Uh, probably we should have a few more about this as well. This divine warrior God parted the Red Sea and the River Jordan. Uh, so, was he angry with the river or sea? Uh, Habakkuk asks rhetorically in verse 8, when he rode out with his horses, his chariots of salvation? Surely not. And yet in the imagery, it's as if he's attacking creation. Uh, in verse 9, he, he, he strips the sheath from his bow, and he calls for many arrows, and he shoots them, and he splits the earth, and rivers form. 
And when the mountains see this terrifying warrior, verse 10, they writhe and the raging waters sweep over the earth. Right? That's a poetic picture, which is the opposite of what happens at creation. The great warrior God attacks the sun and the moon, verse 11, with the light of his arrows and the flash of his spear, even though they don't dare to move. But is God really angry with the waters, the mountains, the heavenly bodies? No, 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 no. That's the poetic picture language. The reality in verse 12 is that God marched through the earth in fury and threshed the nations in anger. God's anger is not directed at creation, but at the nations. And the ultimate reason for God's anger, the fact that he's fierce, the reason that he's out there fighting, is because he loves his people. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. The divine warrior is a hero, and he is fighting to save his people. And he is fighting to save his anointed, his king, which might sound a little strange here, because at the time of the Exodus, there was no king. But however you understand it, it's abundantly clear. This is not a picture of a divine temper tantrum. It is to save his people that the divine warrior brings judgment on the wicked. He crushes the head of his house, verse 13, piercing his warriors with their own arrows in verse 14, when he gloated over God's people, trampling the sea with his horses, the surging of mighty waters. He'd done that at the Exodus, didn't he? Ten different plagues used against Pharaoh in order to save his people. And finally, when the Egyptian army chased the escaping Israelites, God the mighty warrior drowned them all in their chariots and horses in the, in the surge of the waters of the Red Sea. But no wonder the people of the land are scared as he approaches. God, the mighty divine warrior, terrifyingly powerful, uses that power to save his people. But now, fast forward to Habakkuk's day, hundreds of years after the exodus and the conquest of the land. And Judah, God's people themselves, were facing the wrath of the divine warrior because of their own injustice and unfaithfulness. And so like the Midianites and the Cushites of old, Habakkuk is terrified. In verse 16 he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. And yet Habakkuk also remembers that the divine warrior God will punish the Babylonians too for what they would do. And he so, so he says at the end of verse 16, Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. For on that day, the divine warrior would once again be fighting on the side of his people. God is powerful, and one day he will once again use that power to save his people. But for now, Habakkuk knows that God will be bringing judgment on his people. Not him specifically, he's part of a righteous minority, but the whole nation will be punished, and he'll be caught up in it. And the result of that is pictured in verse 17. The fig tree got no blossom. Vine, no fruit. Olive, no produce. Fields, no harvest. Flocks, not in the fold. Stalls, empty. It's a picture of disaster, impending starvation, coming doom. Habakkuk knows this will happen. Because hundreds of years beforehand, back in Deuteronomy 28, God had warned them through Moses of the curses that they would provoke if they disobeyed him in the land. And Moses said, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It also shall leave you 
not, not leave you grain, wine, oil, the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout the land. They shall besiege you in all your towns and throughout your land which the Lord your God has given you. This is what Habakkuk's thinking about, isn't it? The coming judgment through the Babylonians. But God said that beyond that judgment, he will restore his people. A little bit further on, Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, and this is from after the curses have come true. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And so the word of God gives Habakkuk hope. He realizes that even when God is bringing his punishment, he's still being faithful to his promises. And if he is faithful to his promises to judge, then he will also be faithful to his promises to save them once again. And so like you trust the competent surgeon who has saved people, in fact saved you in the past, Habakkuk trusts in this powerful God, this faithful God, who ultimately saves his people. And so he says in verse 17 and 18, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields bear no fruit. Though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk says, I will love God, I will delight in him, I will trust in him, I will prize him above everything else, because even if there is nothing left, I will still have him. And I know this God, the divine warrior, is powerful, and he will use his power ultimately to save his people. He saved his people before the Exodus, and one day he will arise and save us again. So in spite of everything, I will find my joy in God, the God of my salvation. And how is he able to do this? How is he able to trust God's promises even as he faces impending disaster? He tells us in verse 19, God, the Lord, is my strength. You see, this big, powerful, divine warrior God, the one who, actually he is the one who strengthens Habakkuk to enable him to trust him in those circumstances. In fact, verse 19 continues, He makes my feet like the deer's, he makes me tread on my high places. Now that actually recalls what David had written 400 years before this psalm, in, before this uh, passage in Psalm 18, verse 33. Psalm 18 is another place where God is pictured as a divine warrior, but from verse 33 onward is, is David, God's knighted king, who becomes a divine warrior, mirroring God. And Habakkuk is saying that the divine warrior in all his power will strengthen and empower him. And in this case, he strengthens and empowers him to trust in God and delight in him despite the calamity he will face. But remember, the end of verse 19 reminds us this prayer is not just for Habakkuk. It will become a prayer for men and women of faith to sing together in ancient Israel as together they face the curse of judgment on the nation. 
as together they expressed their determination, with his help, to rejoice in the God of their salvation even in the midst of disaster, and to call upon the divine warrior to rescue them once again. And this song would help them encourage each other to trust that God is powerful and that he will once again use that power to save his people. And his prayer is ultimately the prayer of, day, of, of Jesus, the, the true people of God, and the ultimate anointed one from verse 13. Like the people of God in Habakkuk's day, Jesus would experience the terrible judgment and curse of God. But this time it wouldn't be for his own sin, but for ours as he would hang on the cross, under divine wrath, taking the terrible but just punishment for our sin in our place. And yet, even in the midst of judgment, he would still trust the Father. He would still rejoice in the God of his salvation and commit his spirit into his hands. And indeed, God, the divine warrior, would bear his mighty arm and rescue him from death, and raise him to life again on the third day. And not only that, in the event we just celebrated last Thursday, he would seat him at his right hand, far above all rule and power and authority and dominion, and above every name in this age and the age to come. God is powerful, and he does use his power to save his people. So what does this mean for us? Well, like Habakkuk lived in a nation that was facing God's curse, we live in a world that is under the curse of the fall. We live in a world where disaster often strikes. We see it in all the turmoil that this world faces, including the current pandemic, and even God's people get caught up in it. You and I will face it ourselves. There'll be times in our lives when it looks like or it feels like everything is unraveling. Many of you already know what that's like. When your finances crash, your relationships suffer, when you or those whom you love face illness or even death. Maybe not a specific punishment for us, but maybe just part of the fact that we live in a world under curse. And like it was for Habakkuk, going through all this may well be a terrifying experience. But like Habakkuk, you and I can face this with an underlying confidence. We know that we can trust God because he is powerful and he uses his power to save his people. Not just ancient Judah, not just Jesus, but also us. Looking back, we have seen God's power to fight for us at the cross, the New Testament equivalent of the Exodus. When Jesus died for our sins in our place, God also defeated all the forces of evil because what they had against us was our guilt. But when Jesus takes away our guilt, they are completely disarmed. Uh, Colossians 2.15 says, At the cross God disarmed the rulers and authorities uh, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Right? God is powerful. He uses his power to save us, his people. And Christ crucified is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And that same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated up in heaven, that's the power at work in us who believe in him. That is the power that took us from being dead to sin to being alive in Christ. The power that rescued us from Satan's realm and placed us in the kingdom of God's Son. That powerful divine warrior is still working today for the salvation of his people. But in the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 18, the ascended Jesus is that divine warrior who will one day come back to judge the world and save his people. 
And remember the picture of Jesus that God gave John in our New Testament reading from Revelation 19, that rider on the great white horse, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, faithful and true, leading the armies of heaven, judging and making war in righteousness, who strikes the nations, rules them with a rod of iron, treads, treads the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. Jesus is the divine warrior. And if you keep on reading that passage in Revelation, it all goes to show that how he utterly defeats Satan and all his allies, human and spiritual. He will rescue us from the sin and suffering and evil of this world and bring us to be with him in his eternal kingdom where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The ascended Christ is the divine warrior and one day he will come back to judge the world and save his people. And so brothers and sisters, in the midst of loss, in the midst of disaster, we like Habakkuk and more importantly, like Jesus, can take joy in the God of our salvation. We know that God is good. We know that he is just. We know that God brings good out of evil. And we know that God is powerful and uses his power to save his people. We know that we will see all that in the end. So we need to wait for the end of the story. But in the meantime, like Habakkuk, the word of God gives us hope. For we know we can trust in his promises. It wasn't easy for Habakkuk, won't be easy for us. And so like Habakkuk, we look to God for strength to endure. You know, in Philippians 4, the apostles Paul says that he learned to be content in every situation, whether in plenty or hunger, abundance or need. But in the end, it was Christ who empowered him to do that. And so he continued, echoing Habakkuk, he said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that all things there is being content in every situation. So let us ask God to teach us, to strengthen us and empower us, to delight in him despite whatever calamity we face, like he did for Habakkuk, like he did for Paul. Let us keep looking back to what God has powerfully done to save us at the cross. Let us keep looking forward to, God, to what God will powerfully do for us in the future. And in the meantime, let's trust that great, powerful, divine warrior God, for he uses that power to save his people. Let's pray. Almighty God, the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. We thank you that you are indeed the powerful divine warrior and that you use your power to save your people. Thank you that we have seen that at the cross and at the resurrection in the past and that you promise that for the future. Please would you wield your mighty power to strengthen us now, to enable us to still trust in you even in the darkness of this present time. Please teach us to rejoice in you, to delight in you, to treasure you above everything else, so that even when everything else is gone, as one day it will be for each and every one of us, we can still rejoice in you. For you are our eternal inheritance and nothing compares with the value of being yours.
So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.